0: Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, and I think this is hilarious that, you know, we kind of are going through the Bible, and by the way, welcome any family or friends who are visiting with us. So, we're we're in a journey, we're going through um, the Gospel of Matthew, we're in the middle of Jesus' most uh, famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, so He's gathered disciples to come to Him so that He can teach them. These are people who have seen His miracles… Uh, are believing in him and saying, how do we, what do you want us to do? How do we live to be a member of God's family in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus has been going through, and I, you know, we just kind of stop at whatever place and then we pick up the next weekend wherever we left off. I think it's fascinating that on Thanksgiving weekend, here Sunday morning, we pick up in verse 16, moreover, when you fast. How appropriate right after Thanksgiving. (laughs) Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father. Who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So let's just start here with the first obvious fact fasting is really not a way to get God to do what we want. Uh, Some people think of it that way that, you know, I'm going to bend God's arm or I'm going to talk him into agreeing with me as I'm praying for whatever it is that I, here's how I think it ought to be answered. But fasting is not a way to get God to do what we want. Fasting changes us, not God. Fasting is about drawing near to God and saying, God, what is your will? Uh, We presume far too much. We think we know a lot. And it's interesting, a lot of believers, when they pray, and and as you you don't realize it, but a lot of praying is often giving God advice about what he might want to do. And we're telling him how he could help the situation if he would just do this or that. How many would agree that God doesn't need our advice? That's not what prayer is. And so let's turn that around. Prayer is about really seeking God. What What do you want to say to me? What do you want to reveal to me? What is your mind? What is your heart? What is your will in this situation? And look, there are times when... Um, there, there can be problems that that pile up on us, and we we feel besieged uh, no matter which way we turn. Uh, in those moments where you're kind of in a desperate situation, there is something that is practiced by the saints, both in the old and in the new covenant, uh, and modeled by Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus before he even began his ministry of teaching and healing and delivering people from demonic spirits, uh, went out into the wilderness to pray and to fast. to give up food for 40 days and nights. And then he came filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, having defeated the temptations of the evil ones. So he becomes our example. And there, what, what we're realizing is that fasting is about focusing all of our attention now upon God. Uh, Fasting can be more than just from food. The Bible gives several different... Whatever you will set aside uh, for a space of time in order that you might spend more time in the presence of God, waiting on the Lord, listening to Him, and sometimes it takes time to just get into that quiet place where you can hear the still small voice of the Lord. That's what fasting is really all about. And notice that Jesus did not say, if you fast, he says, when you fast. So Jesus is assuming that all believers, this is not just for the apostles or just for the missionaries or just for the pastors, but this is kind of the Sermon on the Mount is for all of the family members. Jesus said, when you fast. So the question would be, you are a follower, lover of Jesus, when have you fasted? When was the last time you fasted? It may be something to consider, maybe something to think about. But when Jesus is now, that was part of the culture, even within Judaism at that time, and something that Jesus is exhorting against is that there were those who had what we could call a religious spirit who did their fasting and they made their faces, when he says disfiguring their faces, he, he basically says that they didn't take care of themselves, they didn't do their normal daily hygiene, and they let their faces get long and drawn and their cheeks sallow. And and they, he says so that they could appear to men to be fasting. And so Jesus is saying, if you are doing it for the appearance of men, then you have your reward. There's no connection with God. There's no uh, divine download an answer to your prayers. So he says, so here's what, if you really want God to hear you, and you really want a divine answer of either wisdom or direction, and you want uh, fasting and prayer that is effective and divine and supernatural, Jesus said, do it this way, hide it to the best of your ability. Now, you you start giving up some meals or whatever, and let's admit, uh, if you eat three meals a day, the time of preparing the meal, eating the meal, cleaning up after the meal, if you do that two, sometimes three times a day, its a lot of time. If you remove that for a set period of time, three days, whatever it may be, uh, then all of a sudden you have more time to pray and to wait upon the Lord. So let me just say that that fasting should not be considered a dieting method. Uh, It's a serious thing, and probably uh, most of us are not in the healthy place that we can go without food for 40 days. There are a few who have done that. But I think that shorter periods of time, set times, uh, and even partial fast can be effective where you are setting aside time. That was either spent eating or doing something else, and you want to redirect your attention to the Father. But fasting, Jesus said, is not a way to appear more spiritual to other people. Our focus is to be seeking the Heavenly Father and God who sees in secret will reward us accordingly. In other words, God is looking... He's not looking for the people that are going around looking religious and holy to other people. I'm fasting, you know. How are you you doing, brother? Oh, I'm all right. (laughs) Oh, wow, what's going on? Oh, nothing. I don't want to talk about it. I'm fasting. (laughs) But, you know, don't feel for me. I just got... Oh, so what's... I've got some things. I'm just, you know... And then the attitude is kind of like that. Jesus said... You did that so that that guy would feel sorry for you on the one hand, and then he would think, wow, you're such a spiritual guy. Jesus said that's hypocrisy, and he did not like that at all. How many of you would agree that one of the problems that maybe you have with family and friends, that you would love to be able to come to church uh, and and hear about the Lord? One of the problems with your family members is they go, "I, I can't stand the church. I don't like the church, or Christians, or whatever, because... They're a bunch of what? Hypocrites. hypocrites. How many of you have ever heard that? Yeah, right? They're a bunch of hypocrites. Well, imagine me. I'm a pastor, so I don't exactly go around advertising everywhere, who, who, you know, what I do or whatever, and I go on planes, and you meet people, and, oh, what's your name? Okay, whatever. And then, my name is Ray. What's your name? Bob. What do you do? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. Oh. You know, you're like, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they change their language, and they start acting a little bit differently, you know, but then they'll say some, yeah, I used to go to church, Oh, you're thinking, okay, cool, used to. You know, but there's always so many hypocrites, you know. So if I've heard that once, I've heard it a thousand times, I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites. So I finally came up with the answer that I use most of the time. I say, well, then you should come and join our church because one more won't make any difference. (laughs) (laughs) And, And they're like, whoa. The point is... I go, what do you think the church is? Uh, we're, we're a bunch of sinners. We're, we're a bunch of sick people. We're a bunch of people who, who are losers. We're just human beings. We're, we are lost. We're all lost. And the reality is, uh, all, you know, everybody is a hypocrite, whether they go to church or not we are all hypocrites. We've all said things we didn't really mean or done things we've regretted or whatever. So the problem is not hypocrites. Uh, the problem is just admitting that that's where we are. So Jesus is now going to the root of that, and, and He's saying, when so here's how we can give a different perception. Don't do it to appear religious to outsiders, Do it in a way, secretly, privately, to the best of your ability, I'm doing this for God because I really want to get God's attention. And God goes, wow, hey, you see my son? Yeah, he took a shower, he washed his face, or she, you know, she did her normal daily hygiene and they look great, but they're fasting, nobody knows it, but they're crying out to me. God loves it when he sees someone do it for the right reason, for him, secretly, and doesn't let anybody else know. And, and then God is moved. I mean, think about this. We as little tiny human beings can move the heart of God. He gets touched when he sees somebody doing it, not as a hypocrite, but doing it genuinely, secretly. And he, and he who sees in secret says, I will reward you openly, publicly, dramatically, supernaturally. How many want to be blessed like that? So let's do it for the right reasons and do it from the heart. Now, let's go on to verse 19. He says, now, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. So basically this, oh, I forgot to read this scripture. Let's read this, Philippians 3, verse 14. Let's read this out loud. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's when you're going inside. I'm doing this for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then the next one, in verses 19 through 21, Jesus encourages us to lay up treasures in heaven. So he's drawing our attention to the one of the most important uh, parts of human existence, and that is our attitude toward material possessions. And Jesus challenges us, not so much on the outwardness of material possessions, but on the inner motivations of our hearts. I want to say this to you this morning, it is not wrong or unspiritual to possess things. It is wrong for things to possess you. And there's a big difference. The, the truth is there is nothing inherently wrong in the Bible with uh, either wealth or property. Although I do have a problem with those who use the gospel to say the purpose of the gospel is to make you wealthy. That's not true either. But what we're saying, what Jesus is saying is uh, just of itself, wealth Uh, or having uh, success in areas of business or whatever, or owning property, that's not wrong. That's not unbiblical. It's not unspiritual. In fact, the Bible is filled with stories of both godly men and women who were greatly blessed. In fact, the father of our faith is a man named Abraham. Abraham's nickname was the friend of God. And Abraham, I don't know if you know this, Uh, But he was a man of substance. Abraham was a man of great wealth, and he continued to be blessed and prosper and accumulate throughout his life. He is called the father of the faith. But Abraham's possessions did not own him, and he honored the Lord uh, through and with everything he had. So Jesus is warning us about the dangers of having a skewed or worldly attitude toward our own wealth. I would also say this, uh, because usually what's wrong is having the extreme position. There's one extreme position that takes that reality and and then says, oh, I don't even think about money. I don't even plan. I'm just going to live by faith. And, you know, they go willy-nilly, as it were, through life. I think that's another extreme. I think you could say that biblically it is wise to have a financial plan. Read the book of Proverbs. Not only the book of Proverbs, read many of the parables of Jesus and the stories of Jesus that dealt with wealth and more to the motivation. What are you using them for, building your own kingdom or helping to bring the kingdom of heaven and touching other people's lives and being a blessing to them? So, it is wise to have a plan, but Jesus reminds us that we are not to place our entire faith in the material world as if it will be your Savior. Um, so, there, there's too vulnerable, if we put all of our faith in material things, there's, it's too vulnerable to moths, to rust, and to thieves. Wise is the man or the woman who stores treasures in heaven. Now, look, I know that there are many of you that are in part of a financial world in that, that area and so forth, and you talk about investments. Jesus also is talking about investments, and he, he is encouraging us not to neglect, but actually to honor investing in heaven, where there are eternal dividends that cannot be taken away from you they cannot be stolen they cannot be eaten they cannot be taken away from a th- by a thief so jesus does not say it is wrong to possess earthly treasure he says it is wrong to lay up treasure merely for one's self we are to just oversee it as abraham did i'm a steward of what god has given to me and i remember that it's all god's all the time and all of the way all right, so Jesus goes on as he talks about laying up treasure in heaven. In verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, beginning where you put your money speaks of where your heart is. So, he says, Invest in things that will touch the heart of God and that expand the kingdom of God and the glory of God and taking care of those in need, uh, feeding the poor blessing the orphans and the widows, as well as spreading the gospel and the good news of Christ around the world, those are all wonderful things that we can invest in that have an eternal reward. All right, so let's look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says something that I remember reading as a new believer, and I was kind of like, I don't completely get this. The lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, there are probably some of you with different family backgrounds or whatever, have you ever heard the expression, the evil eye or the good eye? Um, So when Jesus is talking here about having a good eye or a bad eye, This this phrase may seem kind of unfamiliar to us, especially in English. What does a good eye have to do with wealth? Well, I want to share with you, this is a Hebrew uh, saying. It's a a Hebrew idiom. Like in our culture, we have the phrase in English, oh, that's off the wall. You don't mean literally something was on the wall, it's off the wall. You mean it's crazy. That's what that, it's an English idiom. So also when you say, he has a good eye, she has a good eye, he's got the evil eye, she has an evil eye. What you're saying, a good eye is a description of a person with a generous heart. And the idea is that when they see someone hurting or someone suffering or someone in need or someone hungry and they see it, they respond. They are moved by what they see with compassion. Jesus is saying, this is the essence of the kingdom of heaven. That now that the, you're made in the image of God, all of humanity, we're made in the image and after the likeness of God. To be human is already, all seven billion people on the planet are already made in the image of God who have been given a set of eyes. And when you look through those eyes and you are moved with compassion, you're reverberating with your creator in heaven who himself is moved with compassion whenever his eyes see those who are suffering or in need or hungry or needing to be visited or comforted or encouraged or prayed for or delivered for that matter. And those who close their eyes to it, the idea is almost like squinting uh, with a bad eye, literally means they're stingy. It's almost like a physical reaction. You see something, oh, no, I don't want to see that because that might actually move my heart. So you kind of squint at it and you look, a cast at it, and you walk around it or away from it. That's an evil eye. You say, well, okay, where do you get this? I mean, is this actually, you're saying it's a Hebrew idiom, but where is that in the Bible? Look with me in Proverbs chapter 22, uh, verse 9. Okay, Proverbs 22, verse 9. Let's read this out loud. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. See that? Underline, generous eye. That means your eye is moved with compassion, and it makes you generous. You are being like a child of God, like a son of God, like a daughter of God. Uh, that, that's where Jesus, all the healings that he did, we read again and again, he was moved with compassion for the people. And then Proverbs chapter 23, verse 6, let's read that out loud. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. You know, a miser is somebody that's squinty-eyed. They're stingy. Everybody say stingy. Jesus is saying, don't be stingy. Why? Because when you kind of have to squint or close your eyes not to see the humanity or the need in front of you, and you kind of darken your eyes, you shade your eyes, and you will only go from one area of darkness to another. Being generous Brings light into our lives. And we're also happier and more joyful and more fulfilled, for the which this is why God made us and created us, when we have God's heart of generosity. This is a very good season, and it's one of the overflows of the gospel and of the story of Jesus giving thanks to God on Thanksgiving and all the way to the gift of God at Christmas time, the gift of his son to be generous. And, and the whole world is kind of softened uh, for a season. It's where we can inject not only Merry Christmas and thank the Lord, or, but we can demonstrate our love and compassion for those who are out there in the world that are needy. If we are not generous, our body, our whole body, will eventually be filled with darkness. Our selfish, miserly ways bring a shadow over everything in your life. So I know that there are many people that get discouraged and they get, you know, uh, depressed or whatever, holidays, and your expectations are here, my reality is there, and it's a darkness that can can just engulf you. How do we get out of that? The answer is not through ourselves, but opening our eyes to the needs of others. And as light comes into our eyes, as compassion flows through our hands— Uh, in simple ways, practical ways, loving ways, it fills our own heart with light and love and the very kingdom of heaven. And the Father says, yes, son, yes, daughter, I am proud of you. Can I hear an amen on that? It's a great time to do that. Okay, so, verse 24. I'm going to leave this verse just kind of, it's its own declaration and its own statement. Jesus summarizes all this talk about money by saying this, no one can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is just an old English word for money or riches. So that's what Jesus basically says. We cannot serve both God and riches. Now here's what's important of Jesus saying that. The importance of Jesus saying, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And the reason that's such a powerful declaration and statement is because so many people try. They try. Oh, yeah, I love God, or I believe in God, or, yeah, I want to go to heaven. I certainly don't want to go to hell, and so I'll be good or do good or whatever. But you know what else? I like money. I like riches, it makes me feel good, makes me feel safe and kind of and so if you're you have a divided heart which which where's the priority which really is number 1 which rules which is the king which is really the one that you observe and honor first and foremost is your god you can't have two because you'll end up loving the one despite the other or vice versa so jesus is saying you cannot serve both god and money Again, wealth is not inherently evil. Uh, It it can be, if, if it's in the right place, it can be used. It can be an essential way to help people. And by the way, for instance, Thanksgiving, I want to say thank you to many of you here at Maranatha who took a couple of hours out of your Thanksgiving. I don't know if you know this, but many of our congregation, they drove down to South San Diego and to Bayview Baptist Church with Pastor Terry Wayne Brooks and his congregation, and we merged our people together and we fed people that were poor and needy, and in fact, quite honestly, a lot of kids who don't have a mom and dad maybe at home or being raised in extended family situations, and it just it was awesome. So may the Lord bless you. And if you didn't do that, you were with family. That's great. Who knows? Maybe next year you can take an hour or two and go down there and do that. But that is what is important, is that we take care of those who are in need. Uh, you cannot serve both God and money. By the way, this is a reason the biblical principle of tithing, I think, is healthy for the soul of a believer. Um, not just tithing in a legalistic sense, from the law, the book of Leviticus, uh, tithe means tenth, but let's, let's step back from the law and and what all that that may represent, and let's go back before the law even came along again to the father of the faith, a man named Abraham, who was the friend of God, who before God ever gave the Ten Commandments and so forth on the Mount Sinai, Abraham was a friend of God, he walked with God, he experienced the presence of the Lord God said, here is a man I can have a relationship with, even a friendship with. I will bless this man and make him my friend forever. Whoever blesses him, I will bless. Whoever curses him, I will curse. And of his own heart, Abraham, because of, he, like I said, he was greatly blessed. He was prospered. Uh, God gave this man great wealth. But in his victories, even over his enemies and protecting his family, he came to a man named Melchizedek, who was the king, both king and priest, of the ancient city of Jerusalem called Salem. And he gave a tenth of all his bounty and of all his blessings. He gave a tithe. And the reason that he did that is he was honoring God with the first fruits. For to Abraham, he did not trust in his wealth and prosperity and even the abundance that God had surrounded him and Sarah with. But he first trusted in the Lord, and he honored the Lord with the first fruits of all that he had. It's a healthy thing that I think God later codified as a healthy principle within the book of Leviticus, and then Jesus continues on in the New Testament. I think it's a healthy thing that we know that the Lord is first, and what we give to Him will help further the kingdom of Jesus Christ, let alone taking care of other needs and ministries and opportunities around the world. Jesus taught many lessons about the importance of financial faithfulness. We would do well to be generous with all that God has blessed us with. Now, here's what's interesting. In ancient times, you know, the pharaohs of Egypt, um, they would take their wealth because they were worshipped as gods. They, They were like gods in human flesh. And the people prayed to them and honored them and worshiped them. And they had all of the power, the wealth of Egypt. And when they died, they requested to be buried with all of their money and all of their treasures and with all of their riches. It was buried with the pharaohs under the ground. But then guess what happened? Years later, there were these guys called thieves who went like this And dug up all their wealth, and they took it away. Because you can't take your wealth with you when you go to heaven. Only what you have sent ahead, in a spiritual sense, will be there or not be there, depending for you to reap dividends from. Someone has said, I've never seen a hearse followed by a U-Haul. We don't do that anymore today, because it's not going with us. Can I hear an amen? So, um, you know, all of the, this talk about, you know, money and, and the heart and, and all the rest of it, I want to just share with you, uh, this, uh, la- this weekend, Vicky and my sister-in-law, Roxanne, went locally here and we saw this new movie that came out, I don't know how long it will be out, but it's called The Man Who Invented Christmas. It's about uh, Charles Dickens and this story that he wrote, A Christmas Carol. How many of you love A Christmas Carol? You like that? Yes? It's one of the most beautiful stories. And, and this guy, Charles, uh, it gives kind of the background and the backstory of what he was, you know, how he came up with this story. And it's, I loved it. It was fascinating. Um, Because he is a storyteller. How many of you know Pastor Ray is a storyteller? I like to tell stories and get into telling stories. And one of the things he would do is he would go around Charles and get names. And if it was a cool name, he would write the name down and put it into his writings. um, Because he said, the perfect name will give you the character. He'll just come to you and you'll be able to write him. So Jacob Marley. Everybody say Jacob Marley. All right? That name it gives you an image, right? Then what about Bob Cratchit? Can I hear a Bob Cratchit? Huh? And then the one guy that is kind of the center of the story's name is Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay, you, you did not say that properly. All right. There, you, when you look at that guy, you've got to say Ebenezer Scrooge. Say Scrooge. Yes. You have to say it properly. I want to encourage all of you to get your little children and read A Christmas Carol to them. And when you get to the names, read the names properly. And when you get to Ebenezer Scrooge, you've got to give it a nice Scrooge name. He's a scary guy. And I apologize if he looks like somebody actually in your family. But here's a close-up. Of Ebenezer Scrooge. Now look, here's the the deal. At this time of year, there are people that get ticked off at Christmas time because they're supposed to be happy, and they're not happy, and they're, and there there they are, the squinty-eyed, stingy, counting their thing. They don't want to, you know, is there any hope for Scrooge? And we've all got them in our family, or we work with them, or they're our neighbor, what do we do with these guys? We need to pray for them. We need to love them. We need to reach out to them because the whole point of the story of A Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge is that God finally breaks through this old geezer's tough buzzard heart and brings life out of him. He has a salvation kind of experience. And what does God use? He uses a little boy named... Tiny Tim. Every family has a Tiny Tim. And every situation uh, will have a Tiny Tim where God is going to use, you know, sometimes even a little boy to touch the heart of an old geezer, miser, scroogey guy, and God's gospel is going to get him. So I want to summarize all of this Jesus teaching on the right attitude of heart (laughs) toward this is do not be a scrooge. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay, let's go to verses 25 through 34, and we'll wrap this up. This is the last one. And I'm going to go ahead and put this up there. Do not worry. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God, and he will take care of everything. Verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, "'Nor about your body, what will you put on? "'Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? "'Look at the birds of the air, "'for they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns. "'Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. "'Are you not of more value than they?' "'Life is about more than what are we going to eat, "'what are we going to drink, what are we going to wear?' Uh, Look at the birds. And I believe Jesus was outside. He was teaching outdoors. Uh, This is a picture from the Sea of Galilee. There are thousands of all kinds of birds all around the Sea of Galilee. They were probably flying around as Jesus even said these very things. And what Jesus is saying is, they don't worry. Birds do not worry. God provides for them. And if God provides for birds... For their physical creation, how much more will he provide for those who call him their heavenly father? I mean, there's just multitudes of birds in the northern part of Israel around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And then going on, uh, verse 27, Jesus says, and which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider now, he says, the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these wild lilies. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. I believe at that moment Jesus turned, and this is one of the lilies in the area of the Sea of Galilee. They're just beautiful, and that's why generally we like to go in the springtime when we go to Israel, because the ground just explodes with all these variety of lilies and beautiful flowers. They're incredible. And, and, and Jesus says that even Solomon Uh, with all of his power and wealth and money, and he could take and make as many servants as he wanted, make something new, some garment for him. But it was not as perfect as one wild lily that's here today and gone tomorrow. And if God can do that for a wild little tiny flower, how much more will he clothe and take care of you, Jesus is saying. Um, it's just absolutely breathtaking to be in Israel and to look at the fields that are just filled with wildflowers, and it always brings this thought to mind whenever I see it. So in verse 31, he says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And here's the heart of the whole message. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. If you seek after those things, uh, they may be, you know, rusted or eaten or stolen, and then you have lost God as well. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these other things shall be added your heavenly Father will care for you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is teaching his followers, live in the present. Don't live in the past. Don't live in the future. The average person is dying between two thieves. The, regret, the regrets of yesterday or the worries of tomorrow. Jesus is saying, no, live for now. And here's how to live. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of your material needs will be provided for. Literally, in this, Jesus commanded them, I am now in the name of Jesus. I speak to your spirit. I am, you know, he is the great shepherd and the chief shepherd. I am his under-shepherd. But today, in this house, I am his voice to read his word, and I command you in the name of Jesus, do not worry. Do not be anxious because it's a waste of time and you don't need to do it. God will be with you. God will provide for you sufficient under the day. You got enough things to do to just deal with, live for right now, right here. I love this last scripture, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Here's what we can focus on. Let's read this out loud. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Amen. Let's close our Bibles, let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and and very strong exhortation, a command. Stop worrying, stop being anxious. Because our Father already takes care of nature around the world, whether it's a bird or a wild lily, how much more you will care for, take care of our needs. And therefore, we are free to seek what's really important and seek first the kingdom of God, which is having a generous eye, a generous giving heart, compassion, fulfilling our humanity, by being like our Father who is in heaven. So we thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.